Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, One million people now face hunger in Massachusetts. Coronavirus has driven up the state's largest increase of residents who don't know where or how they will get their next meal. Worse, the nonprofit organization Feeding America reports that Massachusetts' increased percentage of hungry Bay Staters is greater than any other in the country. While the pandemic drives up unemployment rates, more people than ever add to lengthening food pantry lines, many for the first time. Children and people of color are affected disproportionately, while federal response and assistance remain stalled. How have hunger organizations risen to the challenge of increased demand for food? Three groups from the region talk to us about how they've multiplied efforts to help the hungry. Later in the show, for decades, scientists have been using dogs to detect diseases like diabetes and cancer in humans. But now there's hope that medical mutts can sniff out COVID-19. Most dogs have an incredible sense of smell. They can sniff in parts per trillion, and it really could be a game changer because if they're stationed at airports, at schools, businesses, sporting events, movies, malls, who knows, that could greatly help decrease the transmission. Can these canines help us beat the coronavirus? But first, joining me remotely, Aaron McAleer, president of Project Bread in Massachusetts, the state's only anti-hunger organization. Welcome, Aaron. Thanks so much for having me, Callie. Glad to have you. Andrew Schiff, chief executive officer of the Rhode Island Community Food Bank. Hi, Andrew. Hi, thanks for having me on the show. And Ashley Stanley, founder and executive director of Loving Spoonfuls, the largest food rescue agency in New England. Hello, Ashley. Hi, Callie. How are you? Thanks for having me. I'm glad to have all of you. I want to have everybody get a good sense of what we mean by increased demand. So I'd like to have each of you talk about what the demand was last year around this time and what has happened since March, really, I guess, when COVID-19 really took hold. So I'll start with you, Andrew. So before uh, COVID, we were serving in Rhode Island about 50,000 people a month. And then in March and April, there was just a real sense of panic with a combination of schools closed and businesses closing and thousands of people suddenly laid off from work. A a hotline in Rhode Island that normally receives 6,000 calls a month received 16,000 calls for food assistance in April. And we saw the number of people we were serving go up to 68,000 people per month. Mm, Wow. Ashley Stanley, um, what you do is a little bit different. So first, give me just a brief explanation of what you do and then give me the comparison. Thanks. Yeah. So we take food that's otherwise being thrown away and then we upcycle that into the social service stream and make sure we can distribute it to folks who need it. So really, we work with food that is post-retail 
that's already been uh, produced, harvested, grown, sold. Um, maybe it's lost a little bit of its marketable, saleable value, but its nutritional value is still spot on. And we try to do our best. We talk a lot about, about bridging that gap between the abundance of this available food uh, and the need, um, the ever-growing need of the folks that need it. So compare from last year this time to, to, to now. So last year, you know, I think on any given week, we might be looking at, you know, between 65 and 75,000 pounds of food each week, feeding, uh, you know, between 25 and 30,000 people each week. And through COVID, um, we're, you know, between 80, 85,000 pounds each week um, and feeding up to 35,000 people uh, each week. We've also seen a 200% increase in partner applicants just since March, and our waiting list has doubled from last year around this time. That's Ashley Stanley of Loving Spoonfuls. Now, Aaron McAleer of Project Bread, um, do the comparison for me. Listen, it wasn't that long ago when you and I were having a conversation about the 50th anniversary of Project Bread and talking about the need then. But So I'm very interested in, in, in hearing from those days to now uh, what you've seen in terms of increase. Yeah, I mean, from a statewide perspective, before COVID, one in 11 households with children were food insecure, um, which was unacceptable then. We had too much food insecurity going into this crisis. Today, it's one in five households with children are food insecure. Um, we know, and you mentioned it in your opening, that for Black and, Black and Latinx families are disproportionately impacted, that one in five households with children doubles for Black, Black and Latinx families. So the, what we're seeing on the Project Bread end is across our programs, a significant increase. Um, the Food Source Hotline, which is a statewide hotline available in 180 languages to support people looking for food resources, has seen a six-fold increase in volume of calls. So just the number of people out there looking to access food, unable to afford it, has grown exponentially. So our data very much resonates with what both Andrew and Ashley are reporting. And just so my listeners will understand that you three are not representing, you know, outliers, that this is really across the board with any organization dealing with uh, trying to feed people uh, who are hungry. Uh, Let's take a listen to this clip from WCVB Channel 5 in Boston about the demand at the Greater Boston Food Bank. The need has doubled in the last four weeks. Food bank managers say they're seeing families who've never before gone without. For now, they say they still have enough supply to meet the increased demand. So we, we are not at maximum capacity yet, but if you look at store shelves, we are placing demands just like our other friends in the food industry. So that gives a sense, I hope it does, that you know this is an across-the-board problem. And if you start to think in the large numbers that you all have all expressed, there are a lot, a lot of hungry people. Aaron, to the best of your knowledge, how did Massachusetts' percentage of need end up being greater than any place else in the country? I think a large part of it is our unemployment rate um, is a is you know an economic driver. I think you know the good news is Massachusetts has taken the the crisis seriously and you know shut down various aspects of the economy to try to contain the virus. But certainly that's had economic implications. We know that Massachusetts, as an example, has had one of the highest unemployment rates across the country throughout the crisis, and that, and that definitely impacts the number of people who are facing food insecurity. So, Andrew, I want to talk about COVID-19 changing how you operate. Every time I've had a conversation with no matter what the industry is, I've ended up talking about some 
what people believe are temporary changes, but also some they believe might be permanent as a result of this. And I wonder if you can uh, talk about that now, if you can see now that some temporary changes that you've made are also going to end up being permanent. Yeah, I mean, that's it's very worrisome. Uh, one of the ways that we're affected is by the whole uh, food supply chain. There are two separate supply chains. One is retail, which means, you know, supermarkets, wherever you buy food, and then restaurants. And demand has increased significantly at retail stores. And, you know, we've seen the demand decrease so significantly at restaurants, which has also led to layoffs and so many people out of work, particularly here in Rhode Island. We usually get donations of surplus food from supermarkets, but in this crisis, there's been little surplus food to donate. So to try to you know keep up with the high demand for food assistance, we have to purchase food. And that, I think, is um, a major change for food banks across the country. And do you anticipate that's going to be permanent, that this, that COVID and the way that you operate now has, has really put in place a change that you couldn't have anticipated might, might really permanently uh, change how you work? I think it's long term. I hope it's not permanent. Okay. Um, Ashley Stanley, uh, Loving Spoonsfuls, as you have made clear to people, is really a distribution company more than a thinking about, you know, handing boxes of food to people. You're, you, you really emphasize uh, getting the food to the people that need it. And as a result of this, you've added a new route. I know you have many routes uh, around Boston and other places uh, in the area, but you added a new route. Why? So much of the disparities within the community have been highlighted and amplified by COVID and particularly the disparities in access to fresh, healthy food in multiple communities and certainly statewide. We had an opportunity to really look at our current footprint and understand where sort of the hotspots have been and continue to be. Um, And we have launched an eighth route in Boston. It's a permanent route, and it's going through Chelsea, Revere, Everett, uh, EC, and Lynn. Um, We're really trying to understand sort of what these communities need when they're hit this hard, that whether or not the vaccine comes and goes in the timeline of that, these communities that are struggling and the folks that are in it that are struggling, who have lost their jobs, they've lost the ability to consistently provide healthy food to themselves and their families and are suffering all different kinds of consequences, um, they're going to stay in this place. Uh, The effects of COVID will not resolve for a large part of our community when vaccination comes or or we see the community at large start to uh, recover in some ways. So have you uh, made some changes that you feel may be permanent? We should we should make clear that you don't get your food from restaurants. So I'm though people are listening saying, well, um, if Andrew uh, is struggling, having to buy food now at this point because they can't get donations as they might have in the past, you know, how are you managing to gather up anything when restaurants certainly have been under attack? And so I want you to make clear that's not where you get your food. But still, that, you know, all of the places where you would imagine one would get food, I would think would be harder for you to get in these times. Yeah, and that's a natural and easy um, sort of assumption and, and subsequent misconception to have. I think we've always sort of struggled with, um, you know, in, in regular times, the hospitality community is really a backbone and still of the Love and Spoonfuls community in terms of fundraising and community events and engagement. And I want to make clear that, that nonprofits don't survive without hospitality. We have to look 
beyond um, sort of the immediate right here and understand that the hospitality community really needs some help, um, you know, to, to find their footing. But for us, you know, the, work, the food that we work with is, is not necessarily representative of either large-scale food banks or other food pantries. From the start, we have focused on perishable, healthy foods. Our entire fleet of trucks is refrigerated. So what we saw when food started to fly off the shelves um, were, you know, canned goods and <laughs> toilet paper. I don't know if we'll ever understand that, but we saw things really coming out of supermarkets at record speed. But what wasn't flying was uh, product in the produce section. You know, we weren't seeing massive bags of greens leaving. We weren't seeing, you know, big bags of carrots. We weren't seeing a lot of this fresher, healthier, and frankly, more expensive food. We try to be a point in the supply chain and in the distribution system that uh, is intentional about making sure we identify where supply is and get it to where it needs to go. Okay. So Aaron McAleer of Project Bread, first of all, you, you know, you have a massive mandate in, in the state. And one of the pieces that you had to pick up even more so were dealing with food that needs to go to children who would be in school. And as I'm understanding it, that has been a, a great uh, pressure on your resources and ability to, you know, provide that service. So talk a little bit about, you know, what that has meant for Project Bread. Yeah, so there's half a million kids in Massachusetts who rely on school meals. Um, and for some of those kids, between breakfast and lunch, it can be over half of their daily calories. So school meals are critical in anti-hunger work. When the initial stay-at-home order was issued in March, Project Bread in partnership with the Department of Education and partners throughout the state set up meal sites across the state for kids to be able to access this food. So drive-throughs at YMCA's, grab-and-goes at school sites. So that's a completely new model of delivering school meals. We also worked with our congressional delegation um, to lead on passage of legislation to institute pandemic EBT, which put the value of school meals onto an electronic card and was mailed to families to allow them to go to grocery stores and be able to purchase that food. Massachusetts was one of the first states to implement it. And Project Bread was supporting families and understanding the program and doing outreach for it. Um, that program, again, reached a half a million kids across Massachusetts. So where we've been focused at Project Bread is on the federal nutrition programs, on school meals, on SNAP, on Pandemic EBT, on WIC, because of the scale of them, the number of people they have the potential to serve. And we have been focused throughout this crisis on breaking down as many barriers as possible to access accessing them. Around school meals, right now in Massachusetts, any child, 0 to 18, can access school meals at any of the 800 sites across Massachusetts. It doesn't matter if the site's in their hometown. It doesn't matter their income level. They won't be asked about their immigration status. So any kid in Massachusetts right now has access to school meals, universal school meals. That's an example of a barrier we don't want to put back up. We know hunger exists in every single community in Massachusetts and every single school. And we should be making sure that kids can access school meals. I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. My guests are Aaron McAleer, president of Project Bread, 
Andrew Schiff, CEO of the Rhode Island Community Food Bank, and Ashley Stanley, founder of Loving Spoonfuls, were discussing how the pandemic has affected the hunger crisis in New England. Let me circle back to funding, uh, because, Erin, as you just said, federal funding has become critical. And as we know, what may be new stimulus funding is held up in Congress and possibly may be for some time. So back in May, uh, Governor Charlie Baker offered up some funding from the state. And uh, let's first listen to him, and then I want to talk about um, how that's being used for all of you. With respect to food security, COVID-19 has affected all of our lives and has had a statewide impact. But some of our communities and residents who've historically experienced greater food insecurity have been made even more disproportionately impacted by the virus. A little over a week ago, we announced a $56 million program to combat urgent food insecurity for some Massachusetts families and individuals as a result of COVID-19. That funding was a recommendation of the Food Security Task Force we convened last month. So, Aaron, um, was that funding helpful? Yeah, the funding, um, a lot of it went to the food system itself. Um, so supporting farms um, and other food you know, distribution providers. At Project Bread, we really advocated for schools to also be included in that funding mix. So, you know, as an example, schools that have applied and, and received funding have been able to purchase vans in order to provide meals around their community, to do drop-offs at housing authorities um, and whatnot. So the funding source has been able to allow schools to make capital purchases that otherwise they might not be able to afford in order to administer the school meals themselves, um, which are federally reimbursed. Um, Andrew, in Rhode Island, I note that the Rhode Island Food Policy Council offered up a $100,000 federal grant back to federal money, really making a link between food uh, producers and those folks that need supplemental and emergency food. And I'm imagining, since now you're at a point, as you said earlier, of uh, having to purchase some food, that this could be helpful. Tell me about how that fits into what you're doing now. Yeah, no, it's a really interesting pilot. The Food Policy Council is trying to see if Uh, Local growers, farmers can contribute more, donate more food to uh, our food bank. You know, a lot of that is working out logistics that probably we, you know, could have done before, but this emergency has just made it uh, so much more apparent that we have to take advantage of every resource. And there are these uh, local farmers who could use the help, too. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it makes sense, I would think, on a long-term basis if you have established these relationships. Absolutely. We will get donations of food from all around uh, the country, but uh, we should, you know, th- this emergency has really made it clear that local food systems are critical when uh, the food supply chains go haywire. Yeah. Ashley, I want to talk about early on in the pandemic, as we've all discussed here about the food supply chain and the broken system there. We saw farmers dumping milk, letting crops just rot in the fields because they had no way to distribute them. I still just get nightmares thinking about those scenes and knowing how many people could have used that food and yet it couldn't get to them. What uh, plans do you have in place that your distribution will not get interrupted in that way because that's the heart of your business? So, and that's just it, right? We often say that we're a logistics company and a distribution company working in the nonprofit space. And to be in the logistics business, your model really has to be somewhat 
bulletproof. For us, COVID behaved a little bit like um, sort of the worst combination of a weather pattern and a traffic jam and a complete breakdown of, of tech and resources. And what that meant for us was at the very beginning, understanding that one, to your earlier point, while hospitality was shutting down, it did give us an opportunity to serve that part of the community. Um, we don't generally rescue food from restaurants, but you had huge opportunity with uh, restaurants closing, reducing their own inventory, wholesalers who were stuck with inventory because they were no longer, no longer getting any orders. And so there was this sort of massive effort to sort of clear out uh, the walk-in refrigerators and cold storage that, you know, were housing this product that just could no longer be used. And what that's talking about and what that's really speaking to are the breakdowns in the distribution channels. So when we see farmers, you know, pouring out and dumping milk and, and you know, plowing food back under, some of that is happening now. And what we want to do is really think more holistically about how food moves and how we value it throughout the supply chain and make sure that it retains its value enough so that it can get, again, to communities and folks that can't uh, easily access that. So what I want to talk about now is um, just who is in need, because, again, there are these myths about who's in need. I would think that would be broken down at this time now, that COVID has um, made clear uh, a lot of people that you wouldn't have thought needed do need. Um, so let me begin this way. This is uh, Massachusetts Congressman Jim McGovern speaking on uh, our program, Boston Public Radio, this past week about food insecurity in the state. Hunger is everywhere. And stereotypes are wrong. They don't fit what the problem is. And I've been at a number of, uh, you know, sites passing out uh, food boxes and are working with food banks in Worcester or in Western Massachusetts and uh, the lines and lines and lines of people. And again, you know, uh, you know, young people, older people, families, you know, I mean, you name it. It just it, 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 this is a real, real problem. So I'd like each of you just to to give me um, an anecdote about what you've seen has just torn your heart apart during this this time. And I want people to understand as you're telling me this that this is the business that you're in. So it's not like you haven't don't know this and and don't deal with this on a regular basis. But at this moment, that uh, COVID has made it worse. So Aaron. Yeah, I mean, every single day on the Food Source Hotline, we're hearing from callers um, who are facing food insecurity. And, you know, an example is a lot of parents. Um, their kids are no longer going to school. That's impacted their work. Um, they're losing, you know, this, the reliable, sustainable sources of food that school used to provide. And so we've had a lot of parents call us um, wondering, you know, how am I going to feed these kids? I've lost my job. Um, trying to homeschool them, um, doing the best I can, and and you know the best relief we can give them is when we we tell them they're eligible for SNAP and for pandemic EBT and for programs that will um, give them the purchasing power to, to go to the grocery store and buy food and also stay with them for the length of their own economic crisis. But yeah, it's it's everywhere. I agree with Congressman McGovern. Every single community. It's your neighbors. It's your friends. It's your colleagues. Um, most people uh, in America going into this crisis didn't have $500 for an unexpected expense. And COVID was that unexpected expense. There was too many people in our state already living on the brink because of high rent, high childcare costs, high heat and wages um, that just didn't keep pace. You know, we know if you're making minimum wage in Massachusetts, 
you have to work 80 hours a week to afford a two bedroom apartment anywhere. So you do the math for rent, childcare, transportation, heat, and, and people can't afford food. And then if they don't have a savings, um, when a crisis like this happens, they, they quickly become food insecure. Um, SNAP, by the way, for people who don't know it, people tend to think of that as food stamps. That's not the correct word anymore, but that's that uh, it was food stamps. But now that's and the same thing with the EBT card. That's an electronic card to allow you to purchase food in um, grocery stores and, and uh, farmers markets when, when farmers markets were open. Andrew, same question to you. Well, what's been heartbreaking for me is that uh, we have a job training program here at the Food Bank Community Kitchen that uh, trains folks for entry-level jobs in restaurants. And particularly after the Great Recession, we had so many people who were out of work and got retrained and began careers in restaurants. And so many of the alumni of our program are now out of work again. And it, it is just so hard to, to see this entire industry slammed and people who, who've gotten the experience, who have shown themselves to be incredibly hard workers, don't have any place to turn. Our job now is to just make sure, as Aaron was saying, that we're making sure that they're enrolled in SNAP, that they're getting other benefits that they're eligible for, and and hopefully this period of unemployment doesn't last much longer. Ashley? You know, Love and Spoonfuls is not, uh, we don't have a call center, we're not a call center, and we receive so many phone calls now of folks, and they call, and they don't know what to do, and they don't know where to go, and, and certainly most of the time we're sending them to Project Bread, and every now and then it's just somebody who's so scared and so hopeless. And you just, you stay on the phone and you, you know, if, if I have a chance to sort of go through and, and get on the computer and sort of Google for them and where they live and, and what resources are around, there's so much of that happening. I think the other part of this is that, you know, the relief efforts that have happened, I think we have to remember that that's such a huge part of our workforce is not eligible um, for that kind of help. And folks are literally just making it by and they're working in hospitality or they're working, you know, sort of in these invisible positions. Um, where do they go to get help? How do we reach them in a way that is consistent and truly meaningful? And, and this is where the heartbreak really is, because these are the folks who are often the backbone of our community. And we've just got to do a better job of understanding um, how are we going to reach folks who truly need this help um, to really keep them from from getting sucked under. So what we know is that a lot of people who used to give to support, you know, all of your organizations are in need now. So those numbers have gone up. But there still are others who are still working and don't have much, but they would like to share. What What's your um, ask to them, Aaron, about how they can support at this time, particularly while you all are waiting for hopefully more federal support and potentially more state support? I would say two things. One, certainly um, consider a donation at projectbread.org. You know, every dollar that you invest in us um, supports our food source hotline counselors, our child nutrition outreach team, um, our healthcare partnerships team, which is working with healthcare centers across the state. So we're, we do rely on individual donors to um, continue our mission. But I would also say continue to be advocates and, and pick up the phone. We are very fortunate in Massachusetts to have a delegation 
that is committed to anti-hunger work led by Congressman Jim McGovern. But there's a lot of priorities right now um, and a lot of competing priorities. And while nobody, I don't believe, is pro-hunger, um, anti-hunger work is not always the top legislative priority for um, those in Congress, the U.S. Senate, and, and certainly during this transition um, to a new administration, there is a lot of work that needs to be done. Um, you know, I will just say I completely agree with what Ashley said that right now these programs are not they're not um, serving everyone they should, and they're not also giving enough. SNAP, as an example, has been increased during past economic downturns with bipartisan support. We've been asking for the U.S. Senate to increase SNAP since March, mm. and they haven't. Um, the legislation has been sitting on the desk of uh, Leader McConnell since May. Um, that would in itself shorten the lines at food pantries because it would provide more benefits, more money into people's pockets, and then they would hopefully be able to sustain themselves a lot longer. So donate, but also advocate. Um, Andrew. I agree with everything Aaron said. I, you know, I'm in the charitable food business, but I feel really strongly that uh, the lesson from this COVID-19 emergency is that it's government programs are providing the most help. And if there's a lesson here, it's that Congress has to increase SNAP benefits by at least 15% to keep up with the real cost of food. And people should go on uh, rifoodbank.org, not just to donate, but also to see how you can advocate and make sure that Congress does their job in the next few weeks. Ashley. Uh, boy, am I lucky to to be in the company that I'm in um, right now with Andrew and Aaron. Um, I echo everything they said. Um, folks can visit our website at loveandspoonfulsinc.org. Certainly financial support is helpful. Every dollar uh, feeds one person for a day. But overall, we all do the work that we do because there is not enough of an investment in public health and public service from the government. Um, and so I would encourage folks to get educated on what a living wage really means. Hunger at its core is political, and the solution has to be provided with political will. We can do what we can do. We can continue to try and innovate and, and advocate as best we can. But this has to be sort of the will of the holistic community and certainly the will of Congress to make sure that uh, we get the results that, that folks in the community need. Given that there's going to be this kind of COVID-framed uncertainty and COVID-forced uh, response and how you all operate in your various organizations, what do you see coming up in the, in the next few months about how you will be able to move forward? Erin. Yeah, I think first and foremost, we need to make sure anyone who is eligible for those federal nutrition programs, anyone who is eligible for SNAP and not on it should get on it. We um, are we encourage them to apply. We're doing an awareness campaign with Mayor Marty Walsh in the city of Boston to raise awareness about SNAP. So people who are food insecure, um, we really encourage them to call us at our Project Red Food Source Hotline, one 800 6458333 or if you have children and you're worried about putting food on the table go to the school meal sites that's all that food is all provided by the federal government again it's for kids 0 to 18 so i am hopeful that we will see some federal action we need it but in the meantime project red is focused on raising awareness about these federal programs and getting as many people as possible enrolled in them and and we know that that alone will help reduce food insecurity in our state andrew 
it's so difficult now because the folks who normally work very directly with people coming for food assistance uh, now have to socially distance, right? And so, you know, and the folks who run food pantries and meal sites have done all these creative things. They've moved outside and put up tents. They've operated drive-through food distributions, et cetera. But all that means that they're not having the one-on-one -on -one contact that they normally have with the people seeking help. And that's a problem because they don't get a chance to talk to them about the benefits like SNAP that are available and to encourage them to apply. And we're gonna to have to come up with really creative ways to uh, reach out to people better who are eligible for these programs, but right now not enrolled. Ashley, you have the last word. We uh, remain focused just like Aaron and Andrew on serving uh, our immediate end user. Um, since COVID, over 20 of our partners have had to shut down and that's due to either the lack of funding, volunteers, public health concerns. Um, over 15% of our partners, which is 170 plus organizations, they receive all of their food from Love and Spoonful. So the need is going up. Uh, there's going to be a backlog and really a choke point where folks who are knocking on the door looking for and needing help, um, we want to make sure that there are places for them to go and that those places have enough food to feed them. Well, I am hopeful that the holiday season, which traditionally has been a time when people get a little bit more awareness about hunger because it feels like it's abundant everywhere else, um, will serve as another tool by which you can raise awareness for this very important issue. And I thank you all for joining me today. Thanks, Callie. Thanks for helping us get the word out. Thank you, Callie. Aaron McAleer is the president of Project Bread in Massachusetts, the state's only anti-hunger organization. Andrew Schiff is chief executive officer of the Rhode Island Community Food Bank. And Ashley Stanley is the founder and executive director of Love and Spoonfuls, the largest food rescue agency in New England. Coming up, while scientists work feverishly to deliver a COVID-19 vaccine, testing is the only preventative tool. Tests like the mostly reliable PCR screening for the virus and the rapid test often prone to false positives. Now scientists are looking to dogs' noses as the next best hope for a reliable COVID test. Dogs are already trained to smell everything from cancer to diabetes, but can these pups help slow the spread of the pandemic? That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanya. That's Creole for something extra. Dogs have been used for decades to detect disease in humans. Their notable noses, which can sense cancer, diabetes, Parkinson's disease, seizures, and more, have been impressing scientists and medical experts around the world. And now these super sniffers are being trained to smell COVID-19, even in asymptomatic carriers. Can man's best friend help sniff our way out of the pandemic? Joining me remotely, Maria Godavich, journalist and best-selling author, most recently of Dr. Dogs, How Our Best Friends Are Becoming Our Best Medicine. Welcome, Maria. 
Thank you. I'm so happy to be here with you, Callie. Well, I'm delighted to have this conversation with you. We should first say that you are the author of six books. This this particular book is the sixth one. And all of your books have dealt with dogs and how they are in service to and with humans, for the most part. That's a general description of them. But this is the first time you've written about dogs and medicine. You've taken a different tack in your other books. I want to know what prompted your interest in this. Well, it's a great question because it is really a, another step from my previous books, which were about military dogs and uh, secret service dogs, other working dogs, sort of the more badass dogs. And okay. But I started hearing about cancer detection dogs more and more and that they were being used around the world to see if there is a scent to cancer. And, you know, I, I, I find that fascinating. I'm a complete science nerd and I, I love science writing. I love reading about science. And so I, I started looking into it and I realized this is not that different. The work they're doing is not asking anything that much different of the dogs than the dogs who sniff bombs. Those dogs I've written about in the past who save lives with their noses. These lives are not being saved um, on the front lines of war. They're being saved on the front lines of, of medicine. They're kind of thwarting not bad guys, but bad germs, bad diseases. So um, it wasn't that much of a reach for me. And I absolutely loved delving into all the fascinating things dogs are doing that most of us have no idea about. It really is interesting. I, I want uh, my listeners to listen to this woman recounting how her dog, Max, alerted her that she had breast cancer. This is in a BBC Secret Life of Dogs documentary. He would come up and touch my breast with his nose and back off, so desperately unhappy. Initially, I thought, mm, it's just another lumpy breast, as people get. And one day, I was looking in the mirror in the bedroom here, and I looked across in the mirror at Max's eyes, and I knew it was cancer. The day I was picked up from the hospital, he was his old hyper self again. He put his nose across my breast to check where the operation had been, and he was wagging his tail. Now, that's going to seem somewhat fantastical to a lot of people listening, but this is actual science. What do, what do scientists know about how her dog, Max, and other dogs can detect disease through smell? Yeah, um, I, first of all, I, I love that story, and I've heard many, many like that. In fact, the first paper to appear in scientific literature about the possibility that dogs can detect cancer was in England, the British journal Lancet. And there was a letter to the editor by a couple of MDs who had looked up this old case in which a woman had said that her dog sniffed out her cancer, her her leg, she had a melanoma. And I looked into that more because I wanted to meet this amazing dog who, not, well, the person who started this whole idea that dogs might be able to sniff out our diseases, our, our illnesses, our cancers. And I reached out back to the past and got in touch with the doctor and also with the woman who was saved by her dog. And the dog was this diminutive, cute little thing that never would harm a fly. And one day she started biting the woman's leg in the back and that alerted her to the fact that there was something amiss. And what she was probably sniffing was a change in odor. The, there are volatile organic compounds that come off almost everything, especially in the last 15 or 20 years. Scientists have been trying to figure out if there is a scent to cancer and if so, 
uh, what it is, what these compounds, what the, what the patterns of these compounds might be. In fact, at MIT, you've got someone there working on this uh, with some people in England called metal, medical detection dogs. And this research is actually going around the world where um, dogs will be given samples of cancer to sniff uh, versus controls. And the dogs are, are so good at this. Once they have that aha moment, of being able to tell which which ones are cancer and not memorizing the samples because dogs are really good at memorizing things too. They'll, they'll cheat to get their treat. And so if they realize, oh, that's Frank, uh, every time that sample comes up, it'll he'll alert to that. But dogs, uh, we don't know, and it's uncanny how they can do this. Scientists are working to find out what these are by feeding them back certain compounds and seeing if they alert to those compounds in one day. They hope that they will come up with some kind of a version of a sniffer nose themselves, an electronic nose, they're calling it, that will be able to rapidly and inexpensively and very accurately detect cancer on people because dogs are not going to be deployed to do this in, in laboratories or at your doctor's office. You know, I say dogs are only human and they have bad days, good days, and we don't want to rely on such an important uh, decision with a dog's nose, but they're leading us to something really important. I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. My guest is Maria Godavich, author of Dr. Dogs, How Our Best Friends Are Becoming Our Best Medicine. We're discussing how dogs can be used to detect disease in humans, particularly COVID-19. Now, you said dogs are only human, haha, uh, and they can make and they can make some errors. So I guess the next question for me is, are there certain dogs that are best suited, or maybe scientists don't know this yet, for certain diseases? Or are there just certain dogs that can smell any of the odors that would be connected or linked to any potential disease? What, what do they know about that? Most dogs have an incredible sense of smell. They can sniff in parts per trillion as well as 3D, their nostrils act separately in certain situations. They're, they can sniff independently of each other. And we have about 6 million olfactory receptors, while dogs have about 300 million. And I like to say, or some other people who work with dogs think of their sense of smell. You can relate to it almost like our eyesight. Our visual world is rich and vivid, and that's their sense of smell. It, it turns out that most breeds can do this. And what you'll typically see are Labrador Retrievers and maybe some Belgian Malinois, German Shepherds. Dogs were typically used in, uh, in work settings anyway for, for uh, visually impaired or for people in law enforcement. The reason they're used more frequently is because they are really reward-driven and often very food-driven. And that's what you need. You need a dog who has a high drive for a reward, a food reward or a toy reward. And these dogs have shown time and time again that that's, that's what they do. They're used to that. They're really good. And the dog needs to be focused. But I've seen everything from little tiny fluffy Pomeranians. Uh, there's one up in Washington State who helps sniff out Parkinson's to uh, Springer Spaniels, all kinds of mixed breeds. So it really, it doesn't seem to matter. And the dog who sniffed out the woman's cancer I just recently talked about in, um, in England was uh, a little mixed dachshund and some mm. other little tiny dog. And dogs who do this freelance, like the 
the person you just uh, played the recording for or the person I just talked about, they're doing it because something is amiss, something is, is unusual and different. So it doesn't have to be a food-driven dog if it's your own dog. Yeah, that was that was my question because of course what 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 the what we know is as you said they have to be trained to have a high level of response to this. But in a situation like this, you call them freelance or random because I'd heard stories of dogs and even sometimes cats that just are insistent with their humans, you know, and they finally go get whatever checked out. And I was wondering, well, how do they know? Well, you just said you know your human so well. So if your humans humans start smelling differently, I guess you would respond, "You the dog," <laughs> or the, right. You know, and, and here's here's the thing. Um, sometimes it, it may just be nothing. Dogs, my dog sniffs at me all the time, and he'll be poking on my elbow or something. And I don't have elbow cancer. I, I happen to have maybe a spot of peanut butter from lunch. But uh, so we, we have to know when to take these seriously. But if, if a dog is being particularly insistent in a certain part of your body, you might want to listen and, and get it checked out. So, Maria, that what uh, makes your book so timely is that you wrote your book a year ago, and at the end of it, you said, um, given what was known at that moment about science and dogs and, and their high ability to, to be trained around these disease-linked odors, that you know, in a pandemic or in an epidemic, they could become very useful. Little did you know, we'd be in a pandemic and and uh, there would be real world uh, looking at this and particularly uh, with asymptomatic carriers. So first I want to play this clip and there's just some medical dog researchers explaining how dogs can detect COVID-19 in asymptomatic carriers. What we've seen in, in our uh, research is that the dogs actually will find them uh, about five days before they get any clinical symptoms. Trying to get as many cases as we can um, so that we can collect samples of, of, of smell from them. But three ways, using face masks, um, using socks and, um, and shirts as well. So, Maria, this could be a game changer. Um, when you wrote it, had you begun to hear anything about this particular area of research? Not COVID-19, because that wasn't out yet. But um, just wondering what, what made you know that you had to include that in your work? In, in my book, I talked about the fact that dogs have been able to detect, to detect viruses uh, these are bovine viruses, as it turns out, but the fact that they can detect the bovine viruses and differentiate one from another was pretty amazing. And they can also detect bacteria uh, much more easily, in fact, and they're being used in a hospital in hospitals now in Vancouver to do so with the deadly bacteria C. diff. So um, a few of the scientists I spoke to, uh, I, I asked about the idea of, of pandemics and epidemics, and they had... Uh, that was first and foremost in their mind, especially those who were training for viruses. And uh, it was in a chapter, I believe it was called Hidden Enemies. And I just mentioned it, um, and I think it was also at the end that, that this might one day, as you said, uh, come in handy. I never dreamed that it would be something that we would maybe, it, it could help us emerge from some horror show that uh, we would be going through. Well, I think what was key to that, the clip that we listened to and what you just said is asymptomatic, because that's been one of the huge mysteries of this virus. I mean, it's bad enough that um, there's no vaccine at this point and, and um, 
no absolute treatment uh, for people who uh, do get uh, the disease. But there are all of these people walking around, you don't know if you can be, um, that are carrying symptoms and can transfer them to others, but we don't even know that we have it. So if there is a way to have that detected any any kind of way earlier, that's got to be a, a huge. It is. It is really huge. And there is a lot of research going on now about how effective they are with asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic people. And so far, the early research is showing, as your clip said, that that they can do this. They don't know how well, they don't know how accurately, but it is super important. And um, and I think the dogs can do it. They've got this. And these these dogs are being trained around the world. Now, you may just have a little, a little runny nose and attribute it to an allergy even. So it may not be asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic, but just you have no idea that this isn't something normal. And these dogs are being trained all over the world, here in the US, the UK, the Netherlands, Aust- Austria, Chile, Iran. The UAE just rolled out a program where dogs are at airports sniffing for people coming through, uh, coming into the UAE in Dubai. And also in Helsinki, there's a study going on at airports. I think that was the first clip we heard. And it's it's pretty exciting. And in England, the second clip you heard uh, with um, with the researchers there, they are they are asking the public for uh, items of clothing and specific ones so that they can keep training because we they need a lot of samples to be able to do this accurately. Again, so much is on the, on the line, and they want to make sure that dogs are not sniffing for something that we don't know. There's not even they're not even sure yet if um, COVID nineteen might smell different to dogs than other. COVID issues, so I'm, I should say the virus that causes it. Um, and so they're, they're waiting to find out exactly how accurate they are with, with any form of the disease. But they, are, they seem to be really, really good at it, and research continues around the world. And it really could be a game changer because if they're stationed at airports, at um, schools, businesses, sporting events, movies, malls, who knows, um, that, that could greatly help decrease the transmission. And and help people return to some normalcy. Let's listen to a report from NBC. This is about a lab in Helsinki, that's in Finland's airport, where researchers, as you say, are collecting samples from thousands of arriving passengers to show a dog's nose can detect COVID-19. They're, what, cheaper? Yep. They're quicker? Yep. Possibly as accurate? Possibly even more accurate. Because they can smell COVID days before a patient develops symptoms. This can save lives, actually, totally. So I think it's, it was kind of a no-brainer for us. Dogs are able to do this with high enough accuracy. Uh, what we'd be looking at is deploying dogs in areas where we need to screen lots of people very quickly. So, Maria, um, why not here in the U.S., where we have worse numbers everywhere uh, in the world? It's it. There are only two places in the world at this point where dogs are being rolled out, as it were, in the public. In the U.S., it is absolutely being researched. I would say University of Pennsylvania Working Dog Center is collaborating with a multidisciplinary team um, with 
many researchers, many scientists, they're just being a little more careful in their research, perhaps, um, than some other. Everyone's being careful with the research, but some are um, not ready to roll it out to the public yet, even in, in testing form for a little while longer. So it's absolutely going to happen here at some point, as long as the research continues going as well as, as it is right now. It's just a matter of time, I think. And at that point, when the dogs really show they can do this, they have to be able to scale it up big time because they're just training a few dogs everywhere here and there. And what they have to do if this really works is to scale it up. It's all positive training, reward driven. The dogs don't work too hard and they're not exposed. In the cases where they're being rolled out now, they're not screening real people. They're screening uh, underarm swabs taken from the people and they take them to another room. Um, and they, they've shown that sweat does not seem to be a something that transmits the virus so the dogs are safe and the same um, in Helsinki they're taking the sweat off the back of their neck and so that's what the dogs are sniffing it would be nice in England they're trying to make it they actually had their first screening test at Paddington station the train station and the dogs uh, did very well sniffing volunteers wearing clothing that had the scent of someone with COVID-19. They, they scored six out of six in front of Camilla Parker Bowles, who wow. was a big supporter of the organization. She was blown away. And one of the big ministers of health was there as well. And he was blown away. And that's important because they're going to need funding and governments probably are going to be helping fund this kind of training and research in the future. And that's how it will scale up. And, and they want this to be easily, uh, dogs to be easily trained. It takes a few months. Uh, for, for a dog who has not been trained on scent yet to get up to speed on this kind of sniffing. But uh, apparently we have that time with this disease at this point. So uh, before we get a vaccine or even after, these dogs could really help save the day. Dogs are superheroes in so many ways, even if they're not yet sniffing for COVID here in the US or most places in the world, they're helping us get through this really hard time. Those of us who have just regular dogs, there are doctor dogs every day. So they're already doing good. But once they once they start um, appearing around the world uh, in hunt of this pandemic more, they're going to be, this could be their most important job ever. No kidding. So Maria, as you've said, it takes a long time and you have to scale up. So what would be your guess? Like if we were doing Boston Logan Airport, like how many dogs would you need to screen, you know, on a typical day. Of course, it's the numbers are way down now. But can, I don't have a sense of can one dog do, I don't know, 300 before said dog gets tired or you have to, you know, whatever. Well, mm-hmm. as I was saying, uh, right now, the dogs are not directly sniffing people. In some places, uh, they're maybe one out of 10 people will be screened, which is certainly better than nothing. The hope with uh, the, the people I mentioned in England, medical detection dogs and the university they're affiliated with, is that dogs will be able to screen about 250 people an hour, real people coming mm. through these airports. So that I don't know the math for what, what uh, Logan has or, or really mm. how uh, effective the dogs will be uh, if they are screening 250 people an hour. If, if they're capable of doing this, will they miss it? That's being explored now. So I can't really give a, a great guess, but there will there'll be dogs working in shifts. They'll be like, you, everyone has seen dogs at airports sniffing for other things. Like they always sniff for my cheese when I come back from Italy, mm. it seems, and they get me. Um, but they, they are <laughs> really good at sniffing for everything at airports. This is just going to be one more thing. 
Wow. Well, that would be a lot, I think. I mean, even with thousands of people a day, I mean, just to have the hope that you could find some, particularly people who are asymptomatic, is that is important. And if we're looking and, and believing the scientists as they project now, even if we get a vaccine by next summer, the distribution is likely not to happen until the end of next year into 2022. So there's a lot of time and a lot of room to, to have many different ways of trying to handle this pandemic as we try to live with it and protect ourselves, stay safe. So this is one. Yeah, and, and it's it's sure a cute one too. Uh, there, and they really do lift spirits when people see them at airports. Uh, there is a concern in some places that people don't like dogs and may be apprehensive to be sniffed terribly closely. But when it comes to uh, a life and death situation, uh, I think people will will be more than willing for the most part. Well, I would get over the. I don't have a big dog thing, but I'd get over that uh, just to do it. <laughs> By the way, do you have a dog, Maria, and what kind? I do. He is a yellow lab. His name is Gus, and he is lying literally at my feet on his bed. And he sniffs out all kinds of things that he shouldn't sniff out. <laughs> I can't even talk about one that he found yesterday on a walk. It, it, let's just say I live in San Francisco, and it was an interesting find. Okay. <laughs> and on every walk, he does he does find um, at least a couple of toys or balls or something that people leave behind. So he's not a doctor dog, although I think he could be trained to be one because he is super food-driven and reward-driven. But he, he is a, one of those freelance dogs who, who sniffs out things in parks. Are you planning to write more about uh, COVID-19 doctor dogs uh, in the future? Or, yeah, um, I don't know if there will be a book on these dogs, but there will cer- I will certainly be keeping up with them and writing about them in the paperback version of my book, Dr. Dogs, comes out soon. And um, I was able to talk my editor into giving me a few pages to write about COVID. This was over the summer, so that news is probably a little bit old by now. But I, I, I thought it would be really tone deaf to publish a paperback about dog sniffing out disease without mentioning COVID. Well, I'm so glad that you were able to talk with us because we're, it, this is just fascinating and hopeful. And uh, we need... Um, both right now (laughs) in the middle of this. So I thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Callie. It was a pleasure. Maria Godavich is a journalist and best-selling author, most recently of Dr. Dogs, How Our Best Friends Are Becoming Our Best Medicine. That's it for this week's show. We're on the web at WGBH.org, News Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, and available for download wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Hannah Ubele and engineered by Dave Goodman. Kate Dario is our intern. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.